0: From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. As the president moves to protect millions more acres of the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge from oil development, a look
1: at what's at stake. This is an absolutely vast, wild place up in the northern part of Alaska. It's it's an absolutely stunning landscape and home to kind of the most diverse populations of wildlife in the entire Arctic.
0: But if the GOP-led Congress can block the president's wilderness plans, could low oil prices make more Arctic exploration just too costly? Also, how native Alaskans view development on their pristine wild rivers.
2: The river is really important, and I would hate to see anything happen to it. People talk about industry and that sort of thing. Well, industry comes and goes, but a river, like golly, once you destroy it, it's gone.
0: We head north for that
3: and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from United Technologies, innovating to make the world a better, more sustainable place to live. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in
0: Boston and PRI, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. President Obama is expected to veto the Keystone Pipeline legislation, but at the same time, he's offering some parts of the Atlantic coast and Arctic Ocean to offshore oil and gas exploration. But he wants to curb drilling in highly sensitive areas of Alaska by taking parts of the Chukchi and Beaufort Seas off the oil leasing market and asking Congress to grant wilderness status to vast new areas of Anwar, the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. This would give the highest degree of federal protection to most of Anwar, including one and a half million acres of the oil and gas-rich coastal plain. But the Republican-led Congress is unlikely to go along. Alex Terrell is Deputy Legislative Director with the League of Conservation Voters. Welcome to Living on Earth.
1: Thanks for having me on, Steve.
0: So what kinds of wildlife and pristine environment has President Obama proposed to protect with this wilderness designation? Paint me a picture, please.
1: Sure. So, you know, this is an absolutely vast wild place uh, up in the northern part of uh, Alaska, the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. It encompasses you know, five distinct ecological regions. You've got the kind of beaches and salt marshes of the coastal marine areas where you've got polar bears, the broad expanses of the coastal plain where you've got the porcupine caribou herd roaming, the windswept alpine tundra up in the Brooks mountain range. Beyond those, you've got some some highlands where the Arctic plants kind of transition over to the boreal forest. And then in that forest, you've got uh, spruce birch and aspen trees you know, home to more than 200 species of of birds. It's uh, an absolutely stunning landscape and, uh, um, you know, home to kind of the most diverse populations of wildlife in the entire Arctic.
0: This has been a long-running controversy because there's a lot of oil in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. Why try to get a Republican Congress to approve this now?
1: So, uh, you know, the timing of this is is that every 15 years, um, all of the wildlife refuges are supposed to do these these management plans. And so they're supposed to, to do these studies. And so um, they took an inventory of all of the values, all of the biology, the animals, uh, the plants, and really came out with a recommendation that this place is worthy of our highest level of protection for public lands. And that's a wilderness designation. And so Um, So they're going to be managing it to make sure that it maintains that wild character and the president is recommending to Congress, which is the only body that can actually designate formal wilderness, um, that they go ahead and pass a bill that does that. We're not terribly optimistic that this Republican Congress is going to to take up the president's recommendation that they they make it wilderness, but but that's where the science is and, and, and we do hope that they act.
0: Now, for the record, part of Arctic National Wildlife Refuge is already wilderness, right?
1: That's right. That's right. About 7 million acres of the almost 19 million acres uh, of the refuge is wilderness.
0: And this uh, move would make it how much bigger?
1: Uh, It would make uh, the vast majority of of those 19 million acres into wilderness.
0: Now, um, the senator from Alaska, who's also the chairwoman of the Senate Energy Committee, Lisa Murkowski, uh, was, uh, well, outraged over this news. She said that this move amounts to economic warfare against her state. Uh, how can uh, the representatives from Alaska and the administration come together on agreement as to how to balance the economics here and the value of the environment?
1: Well, I think I think there's a balance being struck up in Alaska. I mean, uh, you know, Alaska is one of the biggest oil producers among the the United States. And, you know, just this week, uh, the president, you know, to our regret, announced um, some new lease sales up in the Arctic Ocean, north of the Arctic Refuge. They're holding annual drilling lease sales up in the National Petroleum Reserve right next to the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. There's lots of other drilling happening on state lands up in Alaska. So so plenty of that is going on. And what we're saying is, do we want to sacrifice this absolutely stunning, priceless landscape when there are other oil, oil fields available, and we really ought to be looking at, at alternatives to, to, to just oil drilling, can we be more energy efficient? Can we turn to, to, to wind and solar, which has been growing in a big way? Um, don't feel like that's a trade off that, that we need to make at this point.
0: What sense does it make uh, that the president is offering uh, oil leases, oil and gas leases off the Atlantic coast?
1: Well, look, um, you know, I think we need to take a step back and, and look at kind of our, our broader energy policy. We've got a problem with climate change that, that we need to address, and the president has been taking more steps than, than any president in the history of the United States. We wish that some areas of this plan that he put out on offshore drilling weren't included in the draft plan. You know, the Atlantic is a, is a place that, you know, lots of people live, they go fishing, they go to the beach. Those areas are at risk based on, on what we've seen from the, the BP oil spill. That oil is unfortunately not containable. It spreads far and wide. And so lots of lots of people's beaches are unfortunately at risk if that drilling were to go ahead. And then there's also drilling that will be happening up in the Arctic Ocean that we're also concerned about the impacts to the wildlife and the, the Alaskan natives that, that do subsistence uh, fishing and hunting up there. So... We think he's done, we, he's done a lot, but we hope that, that as this kind of draft offshore drilling plan goes forward, that they, they pull some of those areas back and, and recognize that you know, spills um, are just putting too much of our beaches and our coastal economies at risk.
0: Before you go, Alex, what kind of legacy uh, is President Obama creating for himself with these moves regarding the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge uh, and other items?
1: There's no doubt that he's going to be going down as as one of the greenest presidents that we've ever had. Um, his legacy on on climate change is absolutely assured, and on the conservation front, the wilderness recommendation for the Arctic Refuge really plays into a growing conservation record that's been really strong, in particular of late. He's been designating national monuments, which is what's in his authority uh, to protect public lands. And we've seen some really awesome landscapes protected in southern New Mexico at the Oregon Mountains, outside of Los Angeles at the San Gabriel Mountains. He's designated an expansion of the largest marine national monument out in the kind of remote Pacific Islands. So doing an absolutely fantastic job on conservation and protecting um, some really special places that we've inherited and making sure that they're available for future generations and doing that at a time when you've got Congress not doing very much to to protect special places, but in fact, interested in opening them up to development. So a real legacy that, that he's been establishing on conservation as well as climate change.
0: Alex Terrell is the deputy legislative director with the Legal Conservation Voters. Thanks, Alex.
1: Absolutely. Thanks, Steve, for having me on.
0: For years, advocates for the oil industry have pushed to open up the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge for drilling, and it's a top priority for many Republicans, including Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, who now heads up the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee. Murkowski has sharply criticized the president's bid to expand the wilderness area of ANWR. But underlying the bluster is a question. With oil priced around $45 per barrel... How much economic sense does it make for oil companies to expand drilling in such a harsh environment? It's a question for Joe Stanislaw, an expert in energy and technology investment strategy. Welcome back to Living on Earth, Joe.
4: Steve, you're very good to have me.
0: So uh, we understand that uh, the president's call to designate uh, millions of acres of Anwar as wilderness effectively takes the coastal plain of, of Anwar off the, uh, off the oil market, if that were to go through. Um, how much sense does it make? for oil companies to be expanding drilling in such a harsh financial environment as we have now. Oil is under $50 a barrel.
4: I think if you thought about what the president's action means in the very short term to medium term, from an oil company's perspective, not a whole not a whole lot to them. They have no intention of going there anyhow right now, given everything that's going on in the oil market. Prices dropping from 100 110 down to the low 40s, they have other concerns on their mind, and also they have other low-cost prospects uh, to be developing. Uh, the, those prospects, if they were in the market or on the market, would be out 10, 15, 20 years for them, if, they, if they're really thinking about wanting to go there. That's not, it's not a short-term area for potential development.
0: Talk to me a bit about the oil that is in Anwar. How much is there, and what would it cost to get it out?
4: You know, you ask a very intriguing question. How much oil is there? We don't know. Uh, there has been no seismic done because it has been off limits uh, by, by federal mandate. Uh, there have been, I will call them, informed guesstimates by a very credible institution called the Energy Information Administration, making guesses based on other areas that might look like anwar to say what, what resources could look like. How much is a guess? now.
0: At almost the same time, the president said that uh, he's moving to designate uh, much more of Anwar as wilderness. Effectively, it will place it off-limits to to oil drilling. He also said that there will be new leases offered for offshore uh, Arctic oil, that is, in the Arctic Ocean. How interested do you think industry is in that prospect, given the hard time that Seychelles had, uh, trying to to deal in the Chukchi Sea just this past year? Uh,
4: The... Most of the world's oil and gas industry uh, look to the Arctic as maybe a, a potential resource. But in the, the next few years, 5, 10, 15, it's sort of, in many people's minds, it's off, off their minds. It's not, I won't call it off limits, but it's not, not first and thought in their minds. They have seen the challenges Shell has had, uh, some of them unexpected challenges. Yes, companies like to think about it, but right now no one really wants to put a lot of effort into this.
0: So um, right now, the Hill is, is battling over uh, Keystone legislation that the president has promised uh, to veto. Looking ahead, how important is the struggle in terms of uh, the oil market?
4: Uh, I think part of what the president has administration has done is put out their bones, attractive bones, in many ways, for the oil and gas industry. The offshore southeast U.S., for example, the leasing in the Arctic, more leasing in naval patrol or national petroleum reserve, uh, so that when they veto Gulf Keystone, they, all the industry won't be mad at them. <laughs> this is a political issue, uh, and I think he'll veto. And at the end of the day, one has to ask: given everything else that's going on, and the length of time that's been in the works, does it get developed? And, and the developers must be asking that question too. Although they have sunk so much into this, they want to have it done. But I think the veto comes into play.
0: So this is more politics than uh, concerns about the oil supply.
4: This is definitely about politics rather than concern about oil supply. I'll add another dimension, uh, if you'll allow me. I think the big issue here, uh, like so many issues in the United States, is federal versus states rights. And I think the real issue that Alaskans are raising is, it should be us who has the right to say yes or no, not the federal government. And that's the old-fashioned debate we've had in this country forever. On the one hand, Alaska doesn't agree, but the southeastern states very much agree <laughs> with the residents done, which is allowing that area that was closed, quote, stranded, now is open. So they're, they're happy. They don't mind that federal intervention. On the other hand, Alaska says, those are our lands that might be developed as our future resource, our future income stream. Shouldn't we be the ones who says yes or no to it rather than federal government? This is, this is the age-old debate in the United States.
0: Joe Stanislaw is an expert on energy and uh, investment strategy and the founder of the J.A. Stanislaw Group. Thanks so much, Joe.
4: Steve, always a pleasure. Thank you.
0: It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Time to head off beyond the headlines along with Peter Dykstra. He's with Environmental Health News at EHN.org and the dailyclimate.org and joins us on the line now from Conyers, Georgia. Hi, Peter.
5: What's caught your attention this week? Hi, Steve. Today we're going to talk about water, a few big new problems, a couple of wacky get-rich-quick schemes, and then a couple of helpful resources, a little liquid news you can use.
0: All right, well, let's get the problem stories out of the way first.
5: Here in the U.S., we've been focused on the immediate in-your-face news about crisis and drought. But there are a few drought crises looming large elsewhere and a few sleeper water stories here at home. Sao Paulo is in a water crisis that even became a big deal in the Brazilian elections this past year, one that's been called the worst water shortage in 80 years there. Less water, many more people, and it's a major problem for one of the world's largest cities. And Another one is in South Africa. In Cape Town, it was recently reported that the growing city is using 98% of its available water supply.
0: Those situations pretty clearly don't sound sustainable, what else?
5: Well, closer to home, there's a looming issue, particularly here in the southern U.S. There's a slow-motion train wreck in the form of saltwater intrusion, where saltwater gets into coastal aquifers and renders them useless as drinking water sources. Our biggest population growth has been along our coasts, and that puts added strain on underground water supplies. Mix in a little sea level rise and the sandy, porous soil that dominates coastal geology, and we could be building a coastal water crisis sooner rather than later. Science is just catching up with saltwater intrusion.
0: Yeah, and typically there's a long lag between what science knows and what the political process starts to deal with.
5: It's also a looming problem in places from Vietnam to Bangladesh to the Adriatic Sea. But let's move on to the harebrained get-rich-quick schemes on water. Okay, Peter, you're on. Hair-brain Scheme number 1 keeps coming up in Canada, where there's a lot of open space and a lot of fresh water. Over the years, plans were floated in Manitoba and Quebec to build massive freshwater pipelines to run halfway across the continent, selling water out of Canada to send to thirsty places like California and Texas. A lot of people in Canada weren't too thrilled by that idea.
0: Well, I don't imagine Americans would object too much, because certainly a water pipeline spill wouldn't be as bad as a tar sands pipeline spill.
5: No, but in addition to ecological damage from sucking up to 10% of the region's fresh water for export, it would cost a billion dollars a year or more just to pump the water. So you'd need a whole new energy infrastructure to send water south. You want to hear harebrained scheme number two? Go ahead. Long distance iceberg towing. To me, this one has always had the makings of a crazy scientist movie or a crazy scientist cartoon. But in 1956, John Isaacs laid out a scheme to tow an 8-billion-ton, 20-mile-long iceberg from Antarctica to San Diego.
0: I take it no one was willing to give him enough rope, huh?
5: Yeah, you might say that. Everyone from the Rand Corporation to the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists to a Saudi oil sheik have concocted schemes for iceberg towing, but no luck.
0: And, of course, the eternal question, what could possibly go wrong, comes to mind. Uh, Hey, Peter, give us those recommendations on water info
5: sources. Steve, three great resources for people concerned about water, two real-time websites, and one three-decade-old book. Cadillac Desert by the late Mark Reisner is still the best book ever written on how people fight over water. It's an epic tale of corruption, dirty tricks, and occasional violence over who gets water in the American West.
0: Yeah, don't they say whiskey is for drinking and water is for fighting? So what are the two websites?
5: The U.S. Geological Survey's water data site. The USGS has thousands of stream flow gauges on rivers and streams showing how high or how low the water is. I geek out on this and regularly check my local stream, the South River near Atlanta, where after a heavy rain, the water volume can grow by a factor of a hundred in a few hours. Google USGS and water data and find it. And finally, the U.S. Drought Monitor updates once a week on Thursdays. It's run out of the University of Nebraska, and the Drought Monitor shows what parts of the country are doing okay for water and which parts are hurting, like California and Texas in recent years.
0: And you don't have to be a geek to come to our website to find out more on these things. That's LOE.org. Peter Dykstra is with Environmental Health News and the DailyClimate.org. Thanks so much, Peter, for taking the time today.
5: Okay, Steve. Thanks a lot, and we'll talk to you soon.
0: Fish have long been hailed for their remarkable nutritional value. And you may be old enough to have been forced to swallow cod liver oil, as your mother told you it was brain food. And today, doctors say that switching from red meat to seafood can lower the risk of heart disease and cancer in humans. Andy Sharpless, the CEO of the marine advocacy organization Oceana, thinks that our fondness for fish
6: may have an evolutionary explanation. It would stand to reason that since our bodies are so tuned up for fish, that they're so good for us, that there must have been some time in our evolutionary past when we ate a lot of fish. People do speculate that maybe one of the advantages that our ancestors gave us is that they, f- they were amongst the first primates to figure this out and get to the big buffet that is the uh, seashore.
0: Seems, though, we've overdone it at that big buffet, and though we may be suited to seafood, it's increasingly difficult to eat fish sustainably. Still, writing in his new book, The Perfect Protein, Andy Sharpless argues that we can protect this healthy food and feed our growing
6: population if only we manage our fisheries better. The problem we have is that we love them so much that we have, in a very short-sighted way, depleted the ocean bank account so that the interest, if you will, that that an abundant ocean could provide is no longer big enough to feed the mouths that want to eat it. And that's been driven to a large part by bigger and more industrial-scale fishing. Those, Those have been the real culprits. Really big boats supplying very advanced technology in a short-sighted and very aggressive fishing practice. And the people responsible are, you know, are both the government managers who should be setting the rules to keep this resource abundant and, of course, the bigger fleet operators who have been pushing hard for that.
0: You say that fish is really good for us and we ought to have it, but we're eating too much of it. I mean, maybe we should be just giving up on
6: fish. Well, I uh, am of the opposite view. I, I think that uh, what we have is a very good opportunity to increase the productivity of the ocean by better management, to do so in relatively quickly within five or ten years. If you will stop overfishing, you can rebuild the bank account in the ocean. You can see, therefore, a sustainable level of return each year. In fact, scientific estimates are that if... A relatively short list of countries would do a good job at managing their oceans. We could see an improvement on the order of 20 to maybe even 40 percent in the total world catch from the previous peak in the late 1980s and have that available for people to eat forever. That's what good management could produce and do so well in time to have it available for 2050 when we you will know, we'll have another two China's worth of people living on the planet.
0: What are your rules for
6: managing fisheries? I think you have three. Yeah. Set and enforce scientific quotas. Protect the nursery habitat, the areas that small fish need to, to, to be able to grow up and not be eaten before they get to reproduction age. Protect them from being destroyed by fishing gear that drags along the bottom. And lastly, manage the accidental killing of non-target species. That's called bycatch. If you will do those three things, you will increase ocean abundance you will increase spawning stock and you will have more fish and typically uh, you will get that in a five or ten year period and by the way how's the united states doing with that vision that you have we are i am happy to report one of the better managed oceans in the world in nineteen ninety five in an act of bipartisanship that you know used to be possible in our country president clinton signed a bill that was sponsored by senator stevens a leading republican senator from alaska which tightened the rules on fishing in American waters. And essentially what it did was it said to the regulators in Washington, you need to set scientific quotas. You must protect nursery habitat and you must manage what's called bycatch. In essence, you've got to stop overfishing. You've got to let the ocean bank account build up. And our oceans are improving. The Pacific in particular has been relatively well managed. We are the fourth largest ocean country measured by the size of our catch. And we are now able to say, uh, to hold up our heads reasonably high in the world and say, look, we're showing you how this can be done well and we're managing our fisheries well.
0: Talk to me a bit about the state of fish farming and how much of a solution to the problem it might be of depleted fisheries.
6: Yeah, fish farming seems intuitively, doesn't it? Like it should be a part of the solution. I mean, if you're eating a farmed fish, after all, you're not eating a wild fish. And if the wild fisheries need some space to rebuild, let's all go eat farmed fish. That's an intuitive, but in some cases, wrong logic. Here's what you need to know when you're thinking about eating a farmed fish. You need to ask yourself, what did this farmed fish eat? And the answer to that question creates three categories of farmed fish. They're kind of good, bad, or indifferent. The bad category is if the farmed fish that you're eating eats fish, if it's a carnivore. And what would be a common example of that that lots of people eat? Salmon. Salmon is a carnivore. It gets fed in its pens by the farmers. Wild fish that have been ground up into little pellets. I've been to see them in Chile, in these ocean pens. They get fed little, look like dog food, but they kind of smell like uh, fish. And in the process, they convert four or five pounds of wild fish into one pound of farm fish. And so it's a reduction activity. Now, at the other end of fish farming, there are farmers farming shellfish, mussels, clams, oysters. And this is something about which we are extremely enthusiastic. And people ought to eat as much of those uh, good-tasting things as they can stomach because think about how they grow. They grow by filtering the water. They are eating algae that they're filtering out of the water. They're eating something that we don't want to eat. And even better in some ways, an oyster farmer is that rarest of things in the world. He is a profit-making or she is a profit-making enterprise, providing jobs who wants, indeed must have, a clean ocean and therefore is an ally in the battle against pollution. So tell me, as a society, which fish should we be eating more of and which one should we be eating perhaps less of? So we'd like to suggest uh, four or, depending upon how you count it, five simple rules. Eat wild, eat smaller species, eat local or domestic, eat all the farmed shellfish, I mentioned that, oysters, clams, mussels, that you can, and I'm sorry to say you got to swear off shrimp. Shrimp. Yeah, it's bad news, I'm sorry. Shrimp are, there's no way to get a shrimp and feel good about what you're doing for the future. Wild shrimp are caught in a process that produces very high levels of what's called bycatch. And farmed shrimp are farmed in shallow pens, typically in tropical countries that are often managed in a very short-sighted way and end up wrecking and contaminating coastal zones. It's not a pleasant picture to go to Belize, where I've been, and see those ocean coastal zones once the shrimp farmers have been through them.
0: Now, your book seems to present a bit of a conundrum. On the one hand, it seems to be
6: advocating saving fish so we can eat more of them. I mean, how fair is that to say? Yeah, I think that's a wonderful and, and, and provocative summary of, of my message. And I agree with that. I am saying that. Uh, and it does seem kind of counterintuitive, doesn't it? And the reason it does is that f- ocean fish are the last wild animal that we eat a lot of all over the world. And because most of what we eat is farmed, you know, we have a, developed a different relationship to it. But the logic of saving these fish so that we can eat them is indeed no more unfamiliar than the logic one brings to saving money in a bank account or investing in the stock market. We do that because we want the interest or we want the dividends so that we can spend it. We don't save our money without the idea of someday spending it or spending the interest and dividends on it. And that's the, arg- that's the logic that we're bringing to the moment we're in on the oceans. Andy, what gives you hope? Give me some examples of people who are working to sustainably manage
0: fisheries in the way that you say we should.
6: Well, you know, you can go to the Norwegian cod, which was very badly managed by the Norwegians over you know 40 years from the mid-1940s up until the 1980s. They finally got around to putting discard bans, and the fish came back dramatically in 5 or 10 years. The New Zealander had a rock lobster mismanagement problem, put fishing limits on again in the 80s. That fishery has rebounded. You know, the Norwegian herring, the U.S. haddock, which we mismanaged for 30, 40 years. From 65, we punished this and drove it down until very, very low levels in the early 1990s, put fishing limits on, and it has now very strongly rebounded back to almost its original levels of spawning bass biomass. Fish are, one of the wonderful things about fish is that they are an incredibly powerful and robust part of nature. If we will give them a little bit of room, they will, they will rebound. And you don't have to wait 100 years for the rainforest to grow back. You can, in our lifetimes, go back, plan to go back out into the ocean and see that there's more fish out there, that we can raise our catch levels, that we can give people more jobs, and that people can eat a lot of this healthy and wonderful protein.
0: The end of your book is filled with sustainable seafood recipes.
6: Why did you include this section in your book? Well, you know, we really wanted it to be clear that we believe that people should eat seafood. And so we asked ourselves, how do we make that totally unambiguously clear in the book, that this is a conservationist book that is promoting seafood consumption? So putting recipes in was good for that dimension. It also, frankly, if you talk to people about the category called food, uh, you get a lot more attention than if you talk to people about the category called these creatures that live on the planet with us. And so we wanted this book to have as big an audience as possible, and so we uh, wanted to make clear that if all the people who love food, this was a book that would appeal to them. You know, one of the nice things about this moment, this kind of foody moment that we live in, is that there's some wind at our back. I mean, part of the message of the book is to encourage people to eat things like sardines, that people may not be so uh, familiar eating.
0: You know, I have to confess that there's some small fish that I like, but I, 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 I'm not a big fan of anchovies. Have you got a great anchovy <laughs>
6: recipe? There is. There's a great anchovy recipe in here by Hugh Fernley Whittingstall, um, who's a British chef. Yeah, I, I encourage people to get the book, Perfect Protein, and uh, go to the anchovy recipe and give it a try.
0: Andy Sharpless is the CEO of the environmental nonprofit Oceana and author of the new book, The Perfect Protein. Thanks for joining us,
6: Andy. My pleasure.
0: Coming up, in the last of our series on Alaska, we visit the small town of Wrangell.
7: The people are friendly. The dogs are friendly. (laughs) And it's just a beautiful little town.
0: A beautiful place on a wild and salmon-rich river.
3: That's just ahead on Living on Earth. Stay tuned. Funding for Living on Earth comes from United Technologies, a provider to the aerospace and building systems industries worldwide. UTC Building and Industrial Systems provides building technologies and supplies, container refrigeration systems that transport and preserve food, and medicine with brands such as Otis, Carrier, Chubb, Edwards, and Kidda. This is PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood.
0: Southeast Alaska is a patchwork of tiny coastal towns connected only by a network of ferry boats. The ferries run 24-7 all year long, carrying backpackers, business people, and high school sports teams from one town to the next. Now, if you take the afternoon ferry heading south from Juneau, at about 5 in the morning you'll get to Wrangell. This sleepy little fishing town is located on Wrangell Island, a few miles from the mouth of the Stikine River, and is home to just over 2,000 people. Every summer, locals head out of town and travel up the Stikine to fish and hunt, and the river is the center of an emerging tourist economy. Living on Earth's Emmett Fitzgerald has his final report in his Alaskan series
8: from the town of Wrangell. Nancy Barlow, a kind-faced woman of about 65, first came to the little town of Wrangell on a ferry boat 16 years ago.
7: So I came up on the ferry, spent a month running around the interior. And then spent another month coming back down, stopping at all the islands along the Inside Passage. And I stopped here.
8: Wrangell has two harbors, four bars, one hotel, the Stikine Inn, and the only nine-hole golf course in southeast Alaska. Nancy says it didn't take her long to fall in love with the place.
7: The people are friendly. The dogs are friendly. (laughs) And it's just a beautiful little town.
8: Now Nancy's the manager of a youth hostel based in the First Presbyterian Church. Life in Wrangell is isolated, but Nancy says that she meets people from all over the world and has neighbors of all
7: species. When you go for a drive, you have to be careful there might be a deer crossing the road. You might see a moose. Or there's a bear over at the airport. It's the natural environment that people down south don't ever get to see.
8: One of the most striking aspects of that environment is the Stikine, a glacier-fed river that springs up in the mountains of British Columbia and empties into the sea in a muddy delta a few miles outside of Wrangell.
2: I can recall the first time I went up the river, I was eight years old. Einar Hasseth is an elder in
8: Wrangell's Tlingit community, one of the biggest tribes in southeast Alaska. He says that when it comes to the Stikine, his grandmother taught him everything he knows.
2: I remember my grandmother, she came to Wrangell in 1927, And the following year, she met up with a couple of old friends, and they took her up the river, and they went uh, after subsistence uh, fish. And she continued to do that for several years, and kind of instilled in me that that's a good practice. At least you can put food on the table. So he follows his grandmother's advice. Each year I go up there and get sockeye, and put that up for the winter, and do my moose hunting, and I'm not successful all the time, but nobody is. And then as far as berry picking and that, I gather high bush cranberry up there every year and bring it down. You know, it's pretty productive.
8: When Iner was a kid, he would take a riverboat 60 miles upstream across the Canadian border and deep into British Columbia to a little river town called Telegraph Creek.
2: And I kind of uh, thought, yeah, this is a place to be because uh, there was a hustle and bustle up there. That's the first time I ever run into a horse. So a horse for the first time.
8: In Telegraph, Einar met people from the Taltan First Nation, a Canadian tribe from the Upper Stikine. The Clinkets and the Taltans shared the river and its resources for centuries. The coastal Clinket traded what they got from the ocean, shell tools and oil from a fish called the Ulican, to the interior Taltan for caribou hides, moose, and snowshoes. Marge Bird, a Clinket elder in Wrangell today, remembers the trade from when she was a little girl.
9: The people from Telegraph would come down there and bring their smoked moose hides and their dry fish because they can dry it up there. And trade, trade our halibut and our different things we could get here with what they got up there.
8: But native Alaskans weren't the only ones interested in the river's bounty. Russians arrived in the late 18th century in search of fur. And they found willing trading partners in the clinket, who often acted as middlemen, selling them otter and beaver pelts they got from the Taltan at a higher price. Then the Hudson Bay Company got involved in the fur trade, and by 1850, the otter and beaver populations had collapsed. But in the 1860s, prospectors discovered gold, and the Cassiar and Klondike gold rushes brought waves of settlers to the Stikine and its tributary, the Eskut. By the turn of the century, they had established the town of Wrangell at an old Russian fort a few miles from the river. The mineral resources in the area are vast, and Angie Eldred of the Southeast Alaska Watershed Council says that gold mining continued in the 20th century
4: the 1980s and up to, I think, the late 90s, there were two mines on the Iskut where they were mining gold. It was a smaller scale operation, but they were shipping a lot of the ore out on hovercrafts and by airplane. And so it went through Wrangell and it provided jobs.
8: But larger mines could be on the way. In 2014, British Columbia completed a $750 million power line to bring cheap electricity to the Upper Stikine. With that in place, three new Canadian copper and gold mines are now in development. And she says that the people of Wrangell have supported mining in the past, but these mines are a different story.
4: Wrangell doesn't stand to gain anything. There's no jobs coming to Wrangell. We just stand to, you know, take on all of the risk if something were to go wrong.
8: The new mines are Shaft Creek, Galore Creek, and Red Chris.
4: And all of those mines are on tributaries of the Stickeen River, so, you know, it's all a part of that watershed, and if anything were to go wrong, or there were to be a water quality impact, it's going to wash downstream and it's gonna impact all of our resources that are you know, downstream and on this side of the border.
8: Angie's not the only one concerned about the impacts of mining. Brenda Schwartz Yeager has lived in Wrangell her whole life and takes tourists on boat trips up the river to see the wild glacial landscape of the Lower Stikine. I met her on board her jet boat in the rain.
9: Wrangell wouldn't be here today or earlier if it wasn't for the bounty of the river. The whole reason this community is here is because of the river. I mean, the natives came down the river and settled this area because it was so rich and bountiful. And the reason it's so rich and bountiful is all these nutrients in the river and all the fish.
8: Brenda's family has lived in Wrangell for over a century, and they've always made their living from the river. Her grandmother was a trapper, and her father was a scientist who studied the stahine.
9: My dad was a fisheries biologist for this area, game warden, and probably one of the first Caucasian men to walk most all of the tributaries of the Stikine, looking at its massive salmon runs.
8: The river runs through the 450,000-acre Stikine-Lacant wilderness, a swath of rugged mountains with old-growth spruce and hemlock crawling up from the river valleys. It's crowded with moose, lynx, grizzly bear, and one of the largest seasonal gatherings of bald eagles in North America.
9: Wildernesses don't seem to work as well when they're very small, little postage stamps. And in order for the ecosystem to really function, you need a, this vastness. And the is one of the significance is it's one of these vast places left in the world that's fairly set aside and a little bit untrampled on.
8: Brenda says the few hardy tourists who travel the river with her won't forget that vastness.
9: I like to make them kind of take a breath and realize in a little bit of a way compared to all that vastness, how kind of insignificant we are. Because we're kind of used to controlling everything all the time, right? You know, changing the temperature, changing the lighting or whatever. And I think it's a good experience for us humans to every now and then be kind of out of control a little bit.
8: Brenda's all booked up this weekend, so I'm heading up the river with one of her friends, Mark Gala. burly, gray-bearded, and wearing a red plaid coat like a good Alaska lumberjack. Mark runs one of the only other jet boat tours up the Stikine.
10: 30 minutes time out of Wrangell, you're kind of right in the middle of a wilderness where you have great fishing, hunting, glaciers, you know, it's kind of all here and right out our backyard.
8: Right now, his backyard is surprisingly undeveloped, but that could soon change. In addition to mines, Mark says that hydroelectric power has long been considered on the Stikine and the Iskut. Throughout North America, large rivers have been dammed for hydropower, and Mark says there really aren't many wild rivers left but the Stikine is one of the wildest.
10: Fastest free-flowing navigable river in North America, meaning there's no dams or obstructions along the course of its length to impede any type of flow. It may
8: be the fastest wild river in North America, but down here near the ocean, the Stikine runs slow and brown. It's laden with silt dragged down by over 50 glaciers that feed into the river valley. Mark starts up the boat and warns us it's going to be a bumpy ride.
10: The deep water tends to cut to the outside corners, so we kind of bounce from outside to outside corners. There are a few places where those corners aren't what they should be, which we've learned from School of Hard Knocks. But, so I'm not just zigzagging and doing it all for effect. It actually has purpose. And there's a lot of times where it looks like there's a lot of water and there's really none.
8: From the boat, the river looks narrow, but Mark says this is just one channel in a tangle of braided waterways. As warned, he jerks the jet boat all over the channel, dodging rocks and shallow spots. The muddy banks are covered with gnarled driftwood and entire trees ripped out and dragged down here by the rapids upstream. Around a bend, an island appears in our way, and Mark pulls the boat to a stop.
10: So this is one of the major places where the guys set their subsistence nets. It's right on the, around this island, usually there's two or three nets dangling off of this.
8: Mark says he comes up here to hunt. Deer, bear, moose, even mountain goats.
10: Pretty most all the mountains that you see surrounding the whole river corridor have mountain goats in them. He
8: points out a cluster of them, just tiny white dots against the high green hillside. As a light rain starts to fall, Mark steers the boat down a small side stream. Around a bend, our view suddenly opens up and we're in a lake packed full of giant blue icebergs. Mark says the ice calves off Shake's Glacier at the other side of the lake, then floats down here.
10: Everything is, gravitates to the outlet, so all of the ice that comes off of the glacier ultimately is going to end up at this end.
8: Mark wants to show off the glacier, so he tries to steer the boat across Shake's Lake through a maze of icebergs.
10: Sometimes you can work through the middle, but usually one side or the other is where you can kind of eke your way through, and every time I come in here I try it.
8: But it doesn't work today. The hull of our boat grinds against an iceberg, and Mark has to back out the way we came in. On the way back to town, we stop at a forest service hut to eat lunch. It's a tiny A-frame, the only building in a sea of trees.
10: My family moved up here because of logging, timber, in uh, 1967. So I was, I think, seven years old when they moved up here, so I just was in between jobs at seven, you know, and (laughs) thought I'd... Go with them.
8: For most of the 20th century, timber was the big industry in southeast Alaska. Timber companies signed 50-year contracts with the state to log the spruce, hemlock, and cedar of the Tongass National Forest. At the peak, there were three sawmills in Wrangell, the largest employers in town. But despite large government subsidies, the timber industry in Wrangell eventually went bust. Mark says it just wasn't economical to harvest trees in such a remote location.
10: You have to access the beach somewhere. Then you have to start building road. Then you have to move all your equipment, of course, in to do all that. And it's just all those expenses, tugs and barges and moving equipment. And, you know, lower 48 or Canada, they start their trucks up and go do what they do.
8: It's a familiar American story. Just like old factory towns in the Rust Belt, when the sawmills and Wrangle closed their doors, people left town.
10: We used to be 3,000 plus people, where now we're more like 2,200 or so. So, you know, I mean, we took a pretty big hit on population, really, by nearly a third, when that timber stuff went away. But I don't know, we seem to have adjusted. People just diversify in different directions and do different things. For us, it largely, was tourism.
8: But there aren't many tourists. Wrangell isn't on Southeast Alaska's cruise ship circuit. There aren't any gift shops and only a few places to eat. Still, a small contingent of outdoorsy visitors is giving the town a new post timber identity. And the main reason they come is the river.
10: In fact, without the river, I really doubt that Wrangell would be Wrangell. You know, that's kind of the big draw for us. And I think kind of what put us on the map.
8: Tourism may be on the rise, but the biggest industry in Wrangell is fishing. There are two seafood processing plants with hundreds of employees. And tonight, the harbor is packed with boats back in town to sell their catch and refuel. One of those boats belongs to Brian Merritt, an elementary school teacher and commercial fisherman. He meets me at the bar at the Stikine Inn, wearing a faded baseball cap and an NYPD sweatshirt. Brian says he's been fishing since he was in elementary school.
11: Yeah, I started fishing with Dad, just kind of escalated from there. Bought my own boat when I was 19, put my way through college with it and that sort of thing, started trolling and that sort of thing. And it's just, I've always had a boat, then I got a teaching job.
8: A lot of Brian's students come from fishing families, and he tries to teach his classes in a way they can relate to.
11: last guy brought king salmon in, him on the table, showed kids you know, the bone structure and the spine, and we have talked about the skin. And if I catch a gray wolf when I'm trapping, I'll bring it in on the, the whole, whole thing right in the classroom. <laughs> set it on the table. We'll look at his paws, his teeth. Anyhow, we, we do all kinds of ding dong things. We bring in an octopus. Sometimes I catch those in my shrimp pots, so we bring in an octopus and check those out. And it's whatever's around you bring in from the outside, and it's just a neat way to go with the kids. the
8: Brian says he takes each of his students out on his boat at least once during the school year. He knows his methods probably wouldn't fly in any state other than Alaska, but that doesn't
11: bother him. Uh, teachers have contacted in California and said, you know, I'd be fired if I did that. Yeah. And I said, well, everybody knows me. I've done it ever since I've taught. I've been teaching for 25 years, but it's just an accepted thing in Wrangell. That's how we teach science. That's what the kids get to do. Never had a complaint ever that I'm aware of.
8: With the school year about to start, Brian is in full fishing mode. In a couple of days, he'll be heading out for king salmon, the most coveted of the salmon species in Alaska.
11: I'll get up at like 2.30 in the morning, take off in the dark, run for an hour, start putting my gear in the water just as it breaks daylight. You'll fish all day till at least 9, 9 9.30, whenever it starts to get dark. Usually anchored up by 11 o'clock, sometimes 10.30, and then 2.33, day starts again, charge back out. And you will do that day after day as long as you're catching king salmon. Nothing is better than that. I mean, you live for that.
8: Brian's fishing boat is versatile. Sometimes he uses it to set a gill net near the mouths of rivers like the stikine, waiting to catch salmon as they swim upstream to spawn. But more often he's trolling out in the open ocean, dragging long lines with baited hooks behind the boat. It's not the most efficient way to fish.
11: You catch 1 the amount of fish trolling that you do gill netting.
8: But Brian says nothing beats the thrill of trolling for king salmon. You have to pick the right tackle, set your line at the proper depth, and fight to land the fish once they bite. Brian says it's almost like sport fishing, except you're making money.
11: It's the game of the mind. It's the challenge of it. And of course, king salmon are worth $70 to $100 a piece versus the dog salmon's worth $6. So you're targeting the The high-dollar fish.
8: Though kings are the highest dollar salmon, they're also the scarcest. To supplement the wild stock, the state of Alaska and British Columbia release king salmon reared in hatcheries. Alaska and B.C. have also set tight fishing regulations, allowing only small windows when you can fish for kings. This Thursday is the beginning of the only king salmon window this month.
11: And if it's blowing like a dog on on Thursday, most guys are going to tear offshore and try and get to the fish and crash, boom, bash, it's dangerous. But you only got three days to catch these kings in August. So uh, anyway, that's that's going to be the danger factor.
8: Brian says that most fishermen in Wrangell understand that this kind of regulation is needed to protect the species they depend on. Environmentalism can be a dirty word in a deep red, oil-rich state like Alaska. But Brian says fishermen know a threat to salmon when they see one and mining development in British Columbia has him worried too.
11: Now, I'm not opposed to using some of his resources, but when we're talking about a mine and something might affect a major rivershed, then all of a sudden my opinion changes greatly.
8: The new mines still have serious financing hurdles to clear, but Imperial Metals, the owner of the Red Chris mine, could begin operations in early 2015. Imperial also owns the Mount Polley mine, where a tailings dam breach in the summer of 2014 sent massive amounts of toxic mining waste into the salmon-rich Fraser River. Tiss Peterman is a Klinkit activist. She says that when she saw the video of the Mount Polley spill, she couldn't stop thinking about something like that happening on the Stikine. She says a spill like that could wipe out her small fishing town.
9: As one elder told us, you want fish, you want mining. You can't have both. And the fish is the base of our culture.
8: Tiss hopes that sentiment can unite tribes on both sides of the border. In August, shortly after the Mount Polley spill, Tall Tans in British Columbia blockaded the entrance to the Red Chris construction site, demanding a stricter environmental review of the project. Tiss says that the river has the power to unite people who haven't always been allies.
9: And this is the first time I've ever seen the commercial fishermen, subsistence fishermen, tribes, all on the same page. We all can see the potential devastation this stuff will cause.
8: Einar Hasseth, a Tlingit elder, says that with the timber industry gone, Wrangell can't afford to put the fishing industry at risk.
2: Yeah, if if you lost the fishing industry, you wouldn't have anything. It'd be a ghost town.
8: But for Einar, the need to protect the Stikine, one of the last great wild rivers and the river he grew up on, goes well beyond its economic value.
2: The river is really important, and I would hate to see anything happen to it. People talk about industry and that sort of thing, well, industry comes and goes, but a river, by golly, once you destroy it, it's gone. You can't bring it back.
8: The river and its riches made Wrangell possible, and for this little town on the edge of a continent to survive and thrive, the mighty staking may still be the key. For Living on Earth, this is Emmett Fitzgerald in Wrangell, Alaska.
0: Special thanks to Trout Unlimited for help with Emmett's series. You can find previous reports, more information, and photos at our website, LOE.org. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Emma Fitzgerald, Helen Palmer, Adelaide Chen, Jenny Doring, Lauren Hinkle, James Kerwin, and Jennifer Marquis. And we welcome John Duff to our team this week. Our show was engineered by Tom Tiger, with help from Jake Rigo, Jeff Wade, and Noel Flatt. Alison lierish composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. And like us, please, on our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on
3: Earth. And we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communication and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. Living on Earth is also supported by Stonyfield Farm, makers of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more. www.stonyfield.com
1: PRI Public Radio
3: International